Hello, everyone. It's Angeline Chen. Welcome to Immigration Today, where I interview leaders, advocates, experts, and volunteers in immigration and immigrant rights on the issues, their experiences, and how you can make a difference. Today, we have Dulce Garcia, the executive director of Border Angels. Border Angels is a nonprofit organization that advocates for human rights at the U.S.-Mexican border. This work is done in an attempt to reduce the number of fatalities along the U.S.-Mexico border by educating and assisting the communities on both sides of the border. Services include educational programs, water drops in the desert, day laborer outreach, Familias Reunidas, Immigration Bond Fund Program, and shelter aid support in Tijuana to aid migrants and asylum seekers in need. Dulce Garcia was raised in San Diego and is an undocumented DACA recipient herself. She is a witness of the hardships many immigrants face, but despite of this, she graduated from UC San Diego with a bachelor's degree in political science and attended law school at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. Since then, she opened her private practice in 2016 and has provided assistance to many low-income immigrants, has done hundreds of free consultations, Know Your Rights workshops, and has represented clients in court in collaboration with the Mexican consulate and various nonprofits. In 2017, Dulce and other DACA recipients formed San Diego Border Dreamers to advocate for more humane immigration laws and policies. Dulce also sued Trump and the administration after the termination of DACA on September 2017. As a result of these efforts, hundreds of thousands of DACA recipients are able to renew their DACA status while the case is in litigation. She has received the Woman of the Year Award by Assemblywoman Lorena S. Gonzalez. Dulce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's quite an honor. Thank you for being here. I know you're incredibly busy. We're just going to get straight into some questions about you and your life and the organization. Is that okay? Yes. Awesome. Thank you. So where does your passion for helping immigrants stem from? Well, as you mentioned, Angeline, I'm still undocumented after 33 years of being here in the U.S., And, you know, I'm a business owner, I'm a property owner, you know, no matter if I'm creating jobs, paying my fair share of taxes, contributing to the economy, not only through labor, but also through, you know, what our community contributes so much in in the cultural aspects as well. And no matter what my family and I do, there still isn't a path to citizenship. So the, the... the plight of the migrant is very, very much close to home for my family, uh, for me personally. Um, seeing all of the injustices firsthand, having my own brother be put in a detention center uh, for not having papers. Uh, this is before DACA. And having to go through his deportation during the Trump administration. All of these things we have, my, my family and I have experienced firsthand and, and seeing all of the harm and the pain every single day here at the border. We know that we have a lot of work to do because as hard as things were decades ago, when we came into the U.S., sometimes it feels like we've taken steps back and it's actually worse today. Um, we continue to see death here at our border almost daily. 
Um, so all of these things, it's kind of hard to turn away when we live at the border. So living in San Diego, I think that has also shaped me as a, as a human and as a, as a lawyer um, to where I can't just ignore everything that's happening around me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that that happened to your brother. And um, I hope did, is the deportation case over? The case is not over. We were able to bring him back this year during the small window of opportunity where the doors open to asylum seekers um, because of the litigation from ACLU that um, in the settlement with the Department of Homeland Security, they allowed some people in during the summer months this year, 2021. Uh, I filed an application for him and was able to bring him back. Um, this okay. is this is in great part to the work that we set out to do in Tijuana. And unexpectedly, this opportunity opened up. And I never imagined that I would be able to bring my brother back after him being deported. Because usually, for the most part, when somebody's deported, that's it. Yeah. Um, and so having him back here, back home, to it was around Mother's Day too when I told my mom that mm. she was going to have her son back here in the U.S. and she broke down crying but really happy and excited uh, it took a few times for me to say it to her out loud because she couldn't believe it she was kind of mm. in shock um, and so ha- having gone through that as well um, learning mm. of all of the the horrible experiences that he had in Mexico mm-hmm. all of that you know, it stays with me every single day. And this has been something that my family and I have been going through for, for decades now. And as we continue to navigate the questions in DC as to whether there will be a path to citizenship for my family and for myself, um, all of these issues are very present in our lives every single day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, and I'm glad you're able to be at least together with your brother and your family. Um, and so, so then you want to be you want to be an immigration attorney. You wanted to help people. You want to help your people. Then, what brought you to Border Angels? Border Angels is um, a nonprofit that has a mission of love, and we like to say it's an active kind of love. And so when I first heard about Border Angels, I was without DACA, without any protection from deportation. I was uh, just 18 years old. And I heard that there was a group of people putting water on the desert mm-hmm. so that when migrants that were coming along the border across the desert, um, people wouldn't perish to, to reduce the amount of death. And I knew I wanted to do that so badly and my dad said, no, <laughs> you're undocumented. Mm-hmm. There's going to be border patrol. The last thing we want is for you to get arrested for putting water in the desert. Mm-hmm. But that mission stayed with me, stayed mm-hmm. with me. And the first thing I did when I received DACA was go on a water drop mm-hmm. and seeing the wall for myself, this wall that had kept my family and I in, inside of the U.S. without the ability to travel abroad. I, it, this was right after I had graduated from law school. I was uh, studying for the bar exam and I did a water drop. And that was very transformative to see it for yourself, 
to see the symbol of hate, um, this barrier that very much encaged me here in the U.S. That um, that day I'll never forget, and I knew I needed to get involved. Eventually, I was invited to be a board member, mm-hmm. and now I serve as the executive director for the organization. And I never imagined it when I first heard about people putting water in the desert. I never imagined that I would be a part of these efforts um, and that we would be expanding our services to get people out of the detention center through our immigration bond program. People like my brother mm-hmm. out of the detention center today in 2021, as I mentioned earlier, things are not easier than they were 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the need is still very much there, but to be able to do this work, I feel not only privileged, but I, I feel like this is something that is very much necessary today. Yeah, I can uh, hear your passion um, from, from your voice and I would love to do a water drop with you. <laughs> um, I've never done that. And I remember the videos that were coming out in the media where CBP would be poking holes in the water so that people wouldn't have water. I mean, who does that and saying really mean things um, on YouTube, on a video, I guess, and being recorded. Um, I just, I just, it's hard to believe there are people with that hate immigrants so much, you know? Um, we also saw more recent than in the last few years with all the hateful rhetoric um, going around that the gallons of water were being shot at use this target practice, you know, and it's so painful to, to come across that because we know that this life, this, this water can be sometimes life-saving water, right? For some folks that yes. are crossing in 120 degree weather, this is their lifeline oftentimes. Um, and, and for people to use that as target practice, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to see, and we hope that it's just out of ignorance and not out of hate for another human life. I can't, I can't even imagine doing that. It's a, it's a game for people, you know, people's lives. Um, so as a DACA recipient, what hardships would, that you would like to share that you had that you had to face to get to where you are now? Yes, being undocumented, it's something that shapes your entire life from the very, you know, er, er, all of your day-to-day activities from driving, from having identification, you know, just think about all the things that you do on a day-to-day and how those things would be impacted if you didn't have an identification document, a social security number. Being undocumented in the U.S. means that you're often paid not only less than what the market dictates, but oftentimes less than even minimum wage. Mm -hmm. It means you're subjected to abuse, labor abuse, um, sometimes even violence, and feeling like you have no voice to speak out. When I was uh, in high school, I didn't really envision to the extent that being undocumented would have an impact on my education, for example. Mm-hmm. And when I, I remember being in high school thinking my, my biggest issue is 
not knowing which one of my friends I was going to be following, <laughs> what mm. college I was going to be going to think, you know, thinking all of these um, things about my future. And, you know, I, I went in to see my, my counselor for guidance to see, do I go to this university where my friends are going, or do I go to this other university where it's far away from here, but I know I'm going to love it. There's cows there and everybody's riding a bike. And then my counselor is like, no, you're an illegal immigrant. You're not even mm-hmm. going to be able to enroll in the community college across the street. Yeah. And that just shook my world because I had envisioned my life big. I envisioned mm-hmm. my life and from what my mom was telling me to dream big. And so I was doing everything that I was being told, got the grades that I needed, got the acceptance letters in the mail from various universities thinking my world is opening up. And then there was my counselor crushing it all. And so I stormed out of there angry, um, holding back tears. And I told him, you watch me, you watch me. And, and, and the craziest thing is that the community college was across the street. And he was saying, I wasn't even going to be able to go to that. You know, my world smalled and, um, and, I, I get, luckily have a very um, strong, powerful uh, image of, of my mother. And because of her, I, I was able to enroll in community college um, and paying for it for that was just you know, incredibly difficult. Um, again, being paid under the table mm-hmm. uh, without the ability to work lawfully, um, without at that time, California Dream Act um, was fairly uh, coming around. The word mm-hmm. um, dreamer was not yet coined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the financial difficulty was there. But everything else, uh, overlooking your shoulder to be undocumented, and especially at the border where we have ICE and Border Patrol, and we have the sheriffs, and we have the police, and you have mm-hmm. the Coast Guard, and you have the military, you have a very much a militarized town to always think this is a day that they might arrest me and take me you know mm-hmm. I was working so hard on perfecting my English so that mm-hmm. they you know they couldn't detect my Spanish mm-hmm. um, all of these things they they shape us and there's a, a study that uh, UC Davis did um, about mental health and they documented that those of us that are here as migrant children in California suffer from anxiety and depression and other mental health issues mm-hmm. four times as much as our counterparts in Mexico because mm-hmm. all of the hateful rhetoric, all of the challenges that we undergo here by being undocumented. Um, but if, eventually I, I did transfer to UCSD and paid my way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to law school outside of the state because it was cheaper I was able to get Mm. a scholarship for the first year and you know I can I can go all day about all of the the numerous sacrifices um to to be able to become a lawyer it really Mm -hmm. was a series of sacrifices and um it was it wasn't easy Uh, it was definitely um pushing deadlines, you know, I thought by 30, for sure, I was going to be, um, I was going to have a whole team <laughs> working mm-hmm. under me, my law firm, and I was going to make my first million dollars at 30. And, you know, 
every time that I would have to wait to earn money to continue my studies, that deadline kept getting pushed and kept getting pushed. And, and now here I am working in the nonprofit sector. So my goals have changed <laughs> for sure. Um, but now we have, we've made so much progress in our movement where we have at least today protection from deportation because we have DACA and I was able to get DACA the, right after graduating from law school. Yeah, thank God for DACA, right? <laughs> um, congratulations on your journey. I mean, what what an amazing, just, you, you hit every milestone the way you needed to, you, you like you said, you sacrificed and you did what you had to do. And, you know, you had a good mentor, your mom, like you said, and hopefully others, and you're here. I mean, look at you, right? I mean, it's amazing. Um, so one of, I don't know if this was ever a milestone for you, but like to sue the government, <laughs> seems like uh, you did that. So you filed a lawsuit challenging the rescission of DACA in 2017, Garcia v. Trump, and it went to the Supreme Court of the United States and you won. Um, congratulations on that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that case was? Um, what happened? Yes. Um, I didn't imagine it either. <laughs> I didn't imagine <laughs> um, being undocumented, you know, being um, from a humble family in San Diego that I would be suing, you know, arguably the most powerful person on earth, you know, this government, the Department of Homeland Security with unlimited resources. Um, but it all it all started with a phone call from another undocumented lawyer that reached out and said, um, you know, we both have DACA and we can't let the Trump administration end the program and just sit back and watch it all unfold. And um, he agreed to represent us and I agreed to be the plaintiff. And we knew that that would bring a lot of negative attention to my family from Trump supporters mm. and hate. And certainly enough, we filed a lawsuit just a few days after the rescission of the DACA program in September, 2017, and the hate mail and the death threats poured in. Oh, but with every hate mail, there was a ton of other supportive communication, emails mm. and phone calls and messages saying, thank you for doing this. And Every, every time we would go to court, we were winning. We won at the district court level and then the appellate court level in California. And we took our case to the Supreme Court. And by that time, it was not no longer Garcia v. Trump. It was a lot of other efforts going on at the same time. Other lawsuits in California, the state mm. of California, the University of California, mm. uh, other cities, other states that were joining the effort and other DACA recipients sued also uh, after a lawsuit in the East Coast in New York. Hmm. So there were, there were now hundreds of people joining a legal team of 100 lawyers. So imagine 100, wow. 100 lawyers all in one room communicating about <laughs> best strategy. It sounds scary, forward. actually. Just kidding. <laughs> Oh, anything ever got done, but we did. <laughs> and it was really much a movement mm. of uh, various nonprofits, various plaintiffs, various community organizations, law firms. Um, I do have to give a lot of credit to the private law firms that offered all of this time, numerous, countless hours pro bono work 
um, with very little funding coming in from other corporations that did support us. So we had the corporate sector as well supporting. We had uh, big names supporting mm. DACA recipients because they have DACA recipients working for them as well. And so sure. it was so beautiful to see the movement come together mm. and it culminated at the steps of the Supreme Court, November 12, 2019. Mm-hmm. And I remember being inside and with my friend uh, who's a doctor, DACA recipient, also one of the plaintiffs. Uh, when we went to the restroom, uh, we came out of the restroom and we shared, did you hear what's happening outside? Because we could hear the windows from the windows, the chanting that was happening from a rally outside of hundreds of allies, supporters, and DACA recipients chanting undocumented, unafraid, undocumented, unafraid. And it was just a beautiful moment. It was so recharging, so energetic because it took so long. It took so many years for us to get to this point from Mm. all of those young folk that were getting arrested, apprehended, during the Obama administration, risking their livelihoods, their futures, by getting arrested to win DACA in the first place. Mm -hmm. All the way fast forward to those of us defending DACA now, taking on as this duty to defend the program and the livelihoods of of not only those of us that have been, been benefiting, but we knew what was at stake was also those young people that had been left out of the DACA program when the Trump administration ended it. So this was bigger than myself. This was bigger than those of us that filed suit. This was really a movement. And it was so beautiful to hear the chanting that was happening outside of the Supreme Court. And we knew no matter what the result would be, we were winners. That day we felt like winners because we had an undocumented lawyer representing an undocumented plaintiff mm-hmm. at the, the, the Supreme Court, right? The ultimate court in the land. And, and, and not, not only that, but we were suing the federal government. We were suing yeah. Trump. So it was a very historical moment for our movement. And sure enough, we, we received the decision from the court months later, June 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. And we were all so nervous to, to know whether we won. And we won. We had, we, we had done all the work and we were finding out that the DACA program was going to continue. Um, so our hopes were renewed thanks to those efforts. Um, but it's not quite over yet. It's not Mm -hmm. quite over. DACA is still in limbo. The Mm -hmm. current administration has promised to protect it. Um, But there isn't a path to citizenship today. And really, that's Mm -hmm. what we need in order to end this chaos. Today, people that would have qualified for DACA Mm -hmm. that didn't get the chance to qualify before the program was terminated have not been able to, to get their DACA status. And so we have today 17-year-olds that are talking to their counselor, figuring yeah. out their future the same way that I was yeah. 20 years ago. And they're being told today, I'm sorry, you are undocumented. Therefore, it's not as gonna, it's not gonna be as easy as it is for you for, for other people. You know, you might consider going to community college or postponing your education or mm-hmm. figuring out other ways to get sponsored for your education. So mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking to know that 20 years 
later from where I started, we're back to that where people are not protected from deportation and they're looking at their future and it's limited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first still, that was a huge win. Um, and it's not even a small win. It's a huge win. So congratulations there. And two, yeah, the work is not over. What do you think now the Biden administration had, like, like you said, has said that they wanted to protect DACA. What are the steps that you see they are taking now? What is the next step for DACA for the new DACA applications? Yes, what we need is a path to citizenship. This case that is going on in Texas right now that stopped the DACA program from from reopening all over again. Um, In order for us to stop this continuous attack on the DACA program, it needs to be solid, right? We need Mm -hmm. an answer from Congress. Mm -hmm. We need to put it in the books that there will be permanent protection for, for those of us that came here as children and quite quite honestly, for those of us like my family that has been here for so long contributing to this community in various ways and still have no path to citizenship. And it's hard for us to get a sense of belonging when we're often attacked in this way, when we're often told you don't belong. Um, So I like, we feel American, my family and I feel like this is our home. It has been for Mm -hmm. 33 years. This is where we belong. Our home really is here, but the federal government keeps reminding us you're not quite there yet. And right now in DC, there's talks about, you know, a path to citizenship. And Mm -hmm. recently those negotiations have been talked down to compromise for something like DACA for our families, Mm -hmm. perhaps a parole in place program where we are protected from deportation but we all, we, we don't really have all the benefits mm-hmm. of, of an, an, an indication that this is our home and we belong here. So that's mm-hmm. the solution really to protect DACA program. We need to think outside of the limitations of the DACA program and really come, come up with a plan in Congress. Yes. Put it on the books so that it doesn't become part of another litigation. There's already too many lawsuits surrounding yeah so totally Mm -hmm. um thank you and so let's talk a little bit about the and i know people are listening but there is an image behind you that are tents on on a street it's just basically tents makeshift tents um camping looking tents on the street behind you what what are what is that from Yes, the, the background, um, the image is of the encampment in Tijuana, El Chaparral. Uh, it's the right outer border at the San Isidro Port of Entry, where there are thousands of migrants. Um, by the count of the local government, uh, 600 children in this space. And all of them are asking for asylum, but the border has been closed to them. And so they're just waiting for an opportunity for when the asylum process gets restored so they can make their claim to asylum and come into the U.S. Um, It's really children sleeping on the streets. And as we approach winter and and have begun the raining season, 
these are folks that are going without security of food, without access to medical care, without things as simple as toiletries, a shower. And we're talking about migrant children, the most vulnerable among us that often fall prey to, uh, to the coyotes, to cartels, to um, unscrupulous lawyers, you, you name it, um, as they have waited for a chance to come into the US, oftentimes we hear they become victims of harassment, kidnapping, rapings, uh, just numerous labor abuses. Um, and so they have been patiently waiting and still hold on to hope for a chance to come to the US because they're fleeing from something horrific in their home country. I mean, there's no water there. There's no bathrooms. No. And I know where that is. Personally, I've been to um, Chaparral, walking through from the San Diego side to the Tijuana side, San Isidro. And I, I know exactly where that is. Um, I mean, I can't imagine a place more dangerous um, for them, you know, and and I just heard recently that there's they've been there's been fencing that's been put up. What what is that about? Yes, on um, the twenty eighth of October, the local municipal uh, um, office went in to put a perimeter around the encampment and started to take a census of the people in there and asking them to turn over all of their information so they can then be provided an ID to come in and out of the space. Under the false promise that they would be fed, they had to sign up and provide their identification information. Some of these folks relayed to us that they were afraid of the local police because it was the local police that had turned them over to the cartel. It had been the local municipal police that had turned over their spouse, their sibling to the cartel and oh uh, disappeared or killed. And so they have a mistrust of local government because of all the corruption in, in not only in Mexico, but also in Tijuana and the connection that, that everybody understands is there with cartels, but mm -hmm. nobody really speaks of it. And so there's a mistrust definitely with the local government, especially when they are the ones harassing migrants. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, some of these people in the encampment uh, speak Spanish as a second language. Mm -hmm. So they're indigenous people. And that barrier, the language barrier, is often the reason why they're targeted. Mm -hmm. and, and so that creates even more mistrust between the, the police officers that are seen as arrogant and harassing and, and now fencing them and asking for their information in order to identify themselves to come in and out of the space. Um, and then now more recently in the last few days, the electricity was shut down. They want oh, no. to create the circumstances that are so horrible that they have no other choice but to be driven out of the space. And the governor yesterday very proudly said, we have reduced the amount of people that are there. They used to be 2,500 people. Now there's only a thousand left because they're making the conditions 
so that that people don't feel safe anymore in that space and are looking for other other ways to to survive what the mexican government neglects to admit is that there is no other space for them to go all of the right. set shelters that we support in Tijuana, all of them are at max capacity. None of them yeah. have the ability to receive uh, any more people. And mm -hmm. as the U.S. government continues to expel people into Tijuana, you know, with their uh, expedited removals every single day, expelling people into Tijuana, our, the shelters are just at max capacity. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of people in spaces that um, really should be for for 20 families and we have hundreds of families in those mm -hmm. uh, shelters. Like you mentioned, the Embajadores in Tijuana that you yourself have visited. Mm -hmm. That right now has 1,200 migrants in that space right oh my now. Goodness. Yeah, no, and I it, don't even know how that's possible. And it's one church. It's one church doing the work of the U.S. and the Mexican government without their support. And it's come down to local churches, local nonprofits, to do this humanitarian aid. And so when we think about the folks in the encampment, it's easy to tell them, you know, this is, this is not a good space for you. You have to move, but where are they gonna go? Where, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly, where? And yeah, like you said, I have been to multiple shelters in Tijuana through a volunteer group called Rise to Reunite um, that was formed to help reunite families separate at the border. And yes, I mean, I've seen the amount of people grow in these shelters. They're already at max capacity when I was there, you know, in the beginning. And then it just kept growing and they're saying more, there's more people. They just have to stack them in. It's, 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 it's so sad. It's, it's so overwhelming because you feel like you can't do enough, you know, and then now in these encampments that are on the street, there's nowhere for them to go. And like you said, the Mexican government doesn't have shelters for them. These are all volunteer shelters. Um, what is an example of what, uh, what you do besides water drops um, for, for, through Border Angels? Because I remember I went to Embajadores uh, with our group Rise to Reunite. Then like 50 cars came in a caravan with so many things, toys and food. It was like, Oh my gosh. And people in my team, they're like, border angels is here. <laughs> and I said, Oh my gosh, they're amazing. It was just a long line because it's hard to get in. It's like that dirt road. And, um, and there's just lined up I'm like, Oh my gosh, we got to get out of their way. Border angels. It's you guys are a machine. It's amazing. So um, can we get into a little bit about what you guys do? Yes. So that is, um, part of, of the efforts in Tijuana, uh, we'll be reopening that caravan of love again, um, starting this next month. Uh, because of the pandemic, the border was closed and they were saying only essential travel was allowed. Mm -hmm. um, now they have opened the border to visitors um, from Mexico. Um, and as more, as more of us are vaccinated and mm -hmm. have more ability to test quickly, uh, for COVID, uh, we feel confident enough to start taking volunteers again, where we line up dozens of vehicles, our community members put together donations in kind, and then we take them to the various shelters. We're supporting 17 shelters. 
Um, when the border is closed and we were not able to take in donations in kind in this way, we found creative ways to support them to make sure that the shelters knew they were not abandoned. And it was it was heartbreaking to tell them disinfect everything and wash everything during the yeah. pandemic when they had no ways, right? As if you've been to Templo Bajadores, they were washing everything by hand. Yeah. Um, so how do you wash hundreds of, of sheets and blankets and your clothes? So we provided washers and dryers mm. for them. We provided PPE for them. We paid, of course, the concern was like, well, if you get a, an electric dryer and not have to depend on the sun, how are we going to afford the electric mm. bill? So then we offered everyone to pay for their electricity and their mm. gas and their water. Um, and we moved on to providing uh, a, a, not only a safe space, but also dignified spaces. So we started to do renovations, to do mm -hmm. repairs. Um, so we've done a few renovations this year for bathrooms, make sure the facilities are nice, painting, mm. floors, you name it. And so it's been really beautiful to see what we've been able to accomplish with all the support from the community. We don't receive any government grants. And the work we do wow. um, for the shelters, it's all in Tijuana. So it's really challenging to, to get any type of, of grant. So we depend on individual donations. We depend mm -hmm. on our community that consistently shows up. Even during the pandemic, we were mm -hmm. afraid we were not going to be able to sustain our activities in Tijuana. And it was quite the opposite. People are just, the folks that support Border Angels are very generous with mm -hmm. their time, with their donations. And because of that, we've been able to ensure that these shelters stay open. Mm -hmm. And while the Mexican government was failing them, charging them for, for water, we stepped up and, and ensured that they kept those places operating. Um, and, and not only the 17 shelters, but, but also the encampment. As it, yeah. you know, it was very shocking to arrive at the encampment. And you might have noticed this. There's no big NGOs on the ground. They yeah. are present, right? And they have so many resources. They stepped up and provided state-of-the-art showers for the, the girls in, in the convention center in San Diego for the unaccompanied minors. Uh -huh. So the UN was present present in, in San Diego. And when I saw those showers, I'm like, hmm, you have the ability to provide these things in the encampment. Why won't you? Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a good answer for me. And it's, we know that it's because of politics. We know that migrants at the border are not being welcomed. And this was one, this is one way to tell them that they're not welcome by not providing resources. And so it's been local nonprofits, local organizations, mm. community, individual community members like you that want to know what is happening at the border and show up with donations. And that's how mm. these folks um, oftentimes have have um, had only a meal that comes from from our organizations, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's all because of the community that we're able to do that work in Tijuana, and because of that, we've also expanded our services to provide support for unaccompanied minors, um, children that become part of the system and the foster mm -hmm. care system. Mm -hmm. We opened up our um, green card for kids program last year. We started mm -hmm. with one lawyer. And now this year we expanded to adding a second lawyer because we're able to help out even more children. Mm 
Mm. And so since the green card for kids program started, we've been able to file special immigrant juvenile status for over a dozen children. Mm-hmm. Um, these are children that have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both parents. Mm. And we've been able to stop two deportations. Um, one was already facing an immigration judge. And not only were we able to stop her deportation, but we were able to obtain her green card. Wow. Yeah. And we just celebrated our first citizenship. So one of the children that we're supporting went through the whole process of special immigrant juvenile status, um, legal permanent residency, and just naturalized this year. Oh, my goodness. Really excited to be able to support um, this population. And then we, we expanded our services again last year to open the bond program, the Familia Reunidas Immigration Bond Program. And since we posted our first bond in January, 2020, right before the pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. we've been able to post 97 bonds. Oh my gosh. 97 families that have been reunited and our goal is a hundred this year. So we're three short of our goal. Um, And we just had a fundraiser and we had to have enough to place one bond. And so we're looking for more funding to be able to reach this goal this year to, to, um, to know that there are still migrants, asylum seekers specifically in detention yep. because they cannot pay the thousands of dollars. It is, it's really inhumane, but to know that they're doing this while there's still a pandemic in these detention centers, there's still people mm-hmm. testing positive. And we saw the first COVID-19 related death here at the old time SM detention center in San Diego County. Oh, awful. Um, yeah. And we, su- we supported that family with, with some of the funeral expenses as well. And mm. so, um, all of this, you know, we have been able to do because of our community, we were afraid that people were going to disengage after Biden was elected, thinking mm-hmm. that things would be so much better by now. Mm-hmm. And we were afraid that people would disengage, um, with the pandemic. And it was the opposite of that. People stepped up and because of our community, our, our supporters are just amazing people. We've been able to not only sustain our programs, but improve on them. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I did not know you provided legal services for kids. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So then for, for people who want to help, the audience who are listening, if they want to volunteer, they want to, um, they should go to your website, right? Um, is there a form they can fill out there? Or do they email? Yes, um, they can um, follow us on social media mm-hmm. um, for the more right. uh, last minute events. Um, our, our official handle with Instagram is at Border Angels Official. Also, mm-hmm. We're also in Facebook. But our website is also a, a way to not only stay informed with everything we're doing, and is also a way to subscribe to our newsletter. Mm-hmm. and to donate and, and look for our volunteer opportunities as we reopen back to this new normal. Um, our website is www.borderangels.org, borderangels.org. And there, the email is also listed there to contact for volunteer opportunities. It's admin at borderangels.org. Um, if you want, uh, if you're uh, looking for a presentation for your school, for your church, for mm. your law firm, um, like this one, <laughs> feel free to reach out um, and ask for one of our team members to present about our work and, and collaborate 
and perhaps um, creating a donation drive is one way. Volunteering, um, if for, for lawyers, we're often needing assistance. Um, whatever your talents might be, I'm sure mm-hmm. that we have a need for them um, in all of the work that we do. And last year we did zero fundraising ourselves um, in our office. Everything was done by our followers, people that were very creative in uh, offering DJ sessions, yoga classes. Some people turned to art, did art exhibitions, um, whatever, whatever they had available to them. There was a bake sales happening, mm-hmm. all of the different fundraisers. Um, there was when there, there was a time when we started to get checks in the amount of a dollar in the mail. Aww. And we were wondering where they were coming from because they were from out of state. They were um, in somewhere on the East Coast. And turns out it was a teacher that had talked to her students about Border Angels. And the students felt compelled to tell their parents and they were writing us $1 checks to us. Oh, my gosh. Yes, all of us can make a difference, all of us. And so that, you know, that involved the teacher being aware of what's happening somewhere Mm -hmm. in the East Coast, far removed from the border, but still very much caring and telling the the students, the students feeling that and and having communications or a dialogue with their parents to then write this $1 check and support. That love, yeah, that love and support is what fuels us. So um, whatever you may do to, to, to help us out, um, reach out. There are kids, toolkits, if you've never done a fundraiser, to help you do one on social media, maybe do a, a birthday fundraiser through Facebook. There are a number of ways that you can help us because we don't have at the moment a designated grant writer. We don't have mm. a designated marketing person. We've been focused 100% on providing the support on the ground. Um, so, and if you are living nearby in San Diego County, we'll be opening up opportunities for water drops, for taking donations across the border. We do require that people be vaccinated yeah. um, to, to be in the spaces because as you might know, in, in Tijuana, not everyone has the ability to vaccinate. Not everyone has right. the ability to healthcare and medical attention should they become, um, should they um, get infected with COVID. So we want to take all precautions going into the spaces um, in consideration that, th- that this is their home for now. Um, but thank you for that question. Um, really stay informed is what we ask of everyone to don't forget what is happening here at the border because mm-hmm. it's easy to get distracted with other things and forget those folks that are here at the border that mm-hmm. do have a very strong, powerful voice, but we often choose to not hear it. Yeah, no, I understand. You know, people start look, looking at other things and um, there are a lot of issues and, you know, people forget. Absolutely. So this is why we keep things going. Um, the social media has been very important too, to just remind people. Thank you so much. I think, uh, so what we'll do is we'll put the um, website, Instagram account, all in the introduction to the podcast so that people can click um, to, to go directly, um, Facebook as well, um, and see how they can help. Um, Dulce, thank you so much. Honestly, you have inspired me even more to do stuff at the border. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm at a limit and then I, I feel like, no, I have more energy. I could do even more. Now I want to do water drops um, <laughs> amongst other things. 
And so thank you so much for your time and your dedication to the cause. I, I, I honestly have no idea how you're doing it all. Um, when Yadira emailed you, she, uh, uh, she emailed the communications person and it happened to be you. So I do know that you don't have a communications person. <laughs> oh man, Dulce. So yeah, let's get some donations in and um, get you somebody because you can't do all of this yourself. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again for this opportunity um, to reach out to your listeners. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.